Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Good morning, church. It's been a while since I've been up here. I feel strange again. Um, we haven't talked much about it uh, through this season, but we and churches, tradition, has it that we celebrate a period of Advent. Uh, through this time of year, basically focused on the Sundays. We haven't talked about it too much this year, but in terms of Christmas, it generally refers to the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, today being the last, obviously, before Christmas Day next Sunday. One service, 10 a.m., no, ki no kids programming, remember. The term Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning simply coming. And it was first used by the church in the late 4th century, referring to the coming preparations or waiting period before new believers were baptized. Had nothing to do with Christmas. Within a couple of hundred years, though, the Christians in Rome had tied Advent to the coming of Christ. But even then, the coming they had in mind was not Christ's first coming in the manger in Bethlehem, but his second coming in the clouds as a judge to the world. It's not until the Middle Ages that Advent, the Advent season, was explicitly linked to Christ's first coming at Christmas. And ever since, it's been most often applied to the personal preparation or waiting period, anticipation period, leading up to Christmas Day. Does anybody here besides me hate to wait? It can drive me around the bend having to wait for something because we basically as a society, we long for now, don't we? But we live in a world of not yet. We get stuck in a lineup and we feel like it's never going to move. Do I need to say Costco? <laughs> Have you ever had this happen? You phone a business and they say, do you mind if I put you on hold? And before you can even say anything, it's happened. You can't even say no. They don't even listen. It's rhetorical. You just, I'm going to put you on hold. You're already on hold. You may be on hold for the rest of your life. You don't know. Did you ever listen to a sermon that just goes on and on <laughs> and on? You start to think, is this ever going to end? If you haven't, just wait. One of the reasons we don't like waiting is that waiting reminds us that we don't have the last word, that we're not in control, that we don't have the power to change anything. When we're waiting, we can't do any of the important things that make us feel like we're accomplishing something because we're just waiting. Nobody likes to do it. Go to a doctor's office. They have a whole room devoted to this, the waiting room. Nobody volunteers to go to the waiting room. The one person you never see in the doctor's waiting room is the doctor, right? You never hear the receptionist say, just go straight on in, the doctor's waiting for you. Now, you can actually go online these days and see what the waiting times are at the various emergencies and labs uh, that, so that when you arrive and you can see on the big screen TV for yourself how many hours you have to wait and you can see your name gradually work up the list. I had this experience recently and everybody kind of cheered as their name kind of got into the top 10. 
I think they borrowed that from Disneyland. You know, there they actually put up signs in the lineup saying, you know, at this point, from this point on, it will be another three days before you get to the Jungle Cruise. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if they had signs like that for life? From this point, six months till you find a Or from this point, four years till your kids grow up. Or from this point, 10 years till your spouse grows up. Whatever. <laughs> the problem with waiting is it's not just that we don't know when now is going to come. We start to think that now may never come. We may live in not yet for the rest of our lives. And it drives us to distraction. A few years ago, there was a video that went viral of a guy who is in a fine dining restaurant, and it takes so long for his order to come, he actually calls a pizza place and has pizza delivered to his table there in the restaurant, which he eats while he's still waiting for the food to come. Everybody in the restaurant actually starts applauding because this guy refused to wait to eat. But of course, the beauty of our waiting at this time of year, the waiting we call Advent, at least for Jesus' birthday, is that we know exactly how long our waiting will be. We know that it's just seven days from now till Christmas Day. Some of you perhaps in your home have an Advent calendar up now that reminds you even more visually how long it is that we must wait this time around, but at least there's often chocolates to make that go a little smoother. And so we wait for the day when we celebrate God coming to this earth to walk and live amongst us, the day of Jesus' birth, Christmas Day. How did you do at that waiting this last week? It's estimated that at this time of year, we spend a full quarter of our time shopping, waiting in line. One of the dangers is that we're so bad at waiting, we can make the circumstance or the situation or the goal or the relationship or whatever we're waiting for become kind of the goal, the ultimate goal of, the, of what we're counting on. We can take it to the point of the fact that it becomes an idol. We've just waited so long for this one thing that it must be the most important thing in our life. And that's a dangerous place to be when we make an idol out of something like that. So what's the bedrock foundation you're counting on today? In the context of today in Advent, what's the big hope you're waiting for so when all your little hopes, all the maybe hopes, all of the situational hopes are gone, you still got something that won't, that won't go away. You have a bedrock hope that will be there no matter what. No matter how long you have to wait. Really, there are only two alternatives when you're looking at ultimate hope that you have to count on. With these two alternatives laid out really clearly all over the place in the Bible, they're just this. One such place is to look is in the Old Testament called the Psalms. Here was, here's what the psalmist says at one point. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes his great, by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In other words, we will build our lives on one of two foundational hopes. I can hope in me, or I can hope in the Lord. Now, the first alternative means I will choose to depend on my own self-sufficiency. I will count on my own strengths, my intelligence, or lack thereof, my ability to foresee problems, my ability to solve problems, my power, what resides 
in my will. I can make it happen. I will save myself by my own works, my achievements, my career, my finances, my good deeds, or frankly, even my religion. We give this alternative, this approach, a little acronym, three letters, D-I-Y. Do it yourself. When our kids were small, and it was this time of year, the Christmas season, and we, we bought them a kind of complicated present, like a tricycle or a sleigh or a wagon, I hated seeing that phrase on the package some assembly require, right? It's do-it-yourself time. Do-it-yourself. A couple of years ago for our grandson, we had, we had given him a particularly complex toy. I think it was kind of a nuclear reactor kind of thing. It was, it was, it was complicated, I think. And nothing in it went according to the directions that we were trying to read. Tab A did not fit into slot B. After hours and hours of frustration, like it's one in the morning now, I finally said to Jennifer, do you want some help with that? It's a funny thing. People who would never try do-it-yourself with their electronics or their car or their appliances or even their vacuum cleaner or something like that will try do-it-yourself with their own lives. With their ultimate destiny on the line, I'll do it myself. The writers of scripture in the ancient world noticed this do-it-yourself self-sufficiency. I can build my life on me, salvation by works, it's sometimes called. They saw this strategy would lead to a strange combination of arrogant self-confidence on the one hand and enormous fragility on the other. I love these words from Job. Though the pride of the godless person reaches to the heavens, it's kind of like, you know, if your head's going to get this big and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Doesn't hold back here. Tell us how you really feel, Job. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Surely he will have no respect from his craving. He cannot save himself by his treasure. Money, you see, can't do it. Now, I want to submit that this trust in your own strength, your own power strategy, your do it, the do-it-yourself kind of thing, you have enough money, you're smart enough, bright enough, strong enough, is, is, is stronger than ever a philosophy in our day, in the area where we live. There's a big pull on this one. Now, I'm going to quote from a fellow. He's a Canadian from Toronto by the name of David Brooks. He's a, now a commentator, uh, more or less a cultural commentator, who, who now lives in Washington, D.C. So in the quote that I'm going to give you, he starts referring to Americans. Don't just brush it off. If anything, we tend to be more, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, pendulum swinging more than even the Americans are. But don't let that throw you off. I'd say that at the very least, we fall into the same category here, okay? So see if you recognize any of the dynamics or the characters he talks about here. And this is what he says. I've lived much of my life in the secular culture, and it is an achievement-oriented culture. It starts really early, and it's kind of crushing our kids. If you go to the elementary schools in my local neighborhood, you see the kids coming out at 3 in the afternoon. They've got those 80-pound backpacks on. If the wind tips them over, they're like beetles sort of stuck there on the ground. They get picked up from school by creatures I call ubermums, who are highly successful career women who have taken time off to make sure all their kids get into Harvard. You can tell the ubermums because they actually weigh less than their own children. They've got little yoga mats stapled to their hips. 
During pregnancy, they're taking so many soy-based nutritional formulas that the babies plop out these gigantic 14-pound toothless defensive linemen, just boom, like that. Uber parents, dads just as, maybe even more performance-oriented than mums cutting the umbilical cord, flashing little Mandarin flashcards at the kids, getting them ready for Harvard. And these kids turn into junior workaholics of America. By the time they've applied to schools, they've started six companies, cured three formerly fatal diseases, and they're playing obscure sports like disc golf. When I ask my students, what are you doing during spring break? It's like, you know, I'm unicycling across Thailand while reading to lepers, that sort of thing. They have tremendous faith in themselves. In 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school seniors, are you a very important person? And at that point, 12% said, yes, I'm a very important person. They asked the same question in 2005, and 80% said, I'm a very important person. Americans score 25th in the world in math, but if you ask Americans, are you really good at math? We are number one in the world at thinking we're really good at math. <laughs> Time magazine asked Americans, are you in the top 1% of the nation's earners? 19% of Americans believe they are in the top 1% of American earners. So we have a lot of self-confidence. We do it ourselves. And we have a great desire for fame. Fame used to be quite low as a value. Now it's the second most desired quality in young people. They did a study, would you rather be president of Harvard or Justin Bieber's personal assistant? By a three to one margin, people would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant than president of Harvard. Though to be fair, he quotes, I asked the president of Harvard and she would rather be Justin Bieber's personal <laughs> assistant too. End of quote. So we live in an achievement culture a culture of people striving and trying to win success. The way you would express this contrast, this hunger for success, is by two sets of values, which you could call resume values or eulogy values. It's a profound distinction. Resume values are the things you bring to the marketplace that you put on a resume, like, hey, here's my IQ, here's my grade scores, here are the degrees I've acquired, here's the awards that I've won, here's the many ladders that I've climbed, here's my networking. You can have a really good resume and still be a really bad person. You can have a really good resume and leave a really, live a really bad life. Eulogy values, on the other hand, are the qualities that people talk about when somebody dies. What kind of person were you? Love, joy, humility, servanthood, generosity. Here's the interesting thing. Surveys have shown that we all know, we all deep down know that eulogy values are way more important. But we spend most of our time on our resume values. All of our sense of identity, all of our emotion gets wrapped up in resume values. Who are you? Do you matter? Does your life count? It's all over there. The writers of scripture knew all about this. I can try the do-it-yourself resume salvation. I can depend on my education, my wealth, my obvious good looks, my connections, my achievements to secure my life. I can even throw in some good deeds on occasion. I can even throw in occasional church attendance or a little giving or every once in a while volunteering. 
But a crisis is going to come, and all of our degrees and what we think we have power and control over will not make it go away. Suffering will come, and all of our networks and all of our contacts will not put any kind of a stop to it. An addiction will come. All our strength cannot deliver us. Moral failure will come. And all of the doctors in the world cannot wash away the guilt that wakes us up at two in the morning. For sure, aging and death will come and judgment will come. How's the Christmas message going so far? <laughs> you and I will stand before God one day and he will not be impressed one bit by any of our resume values. Kings and warriors and wealthy folk, the rich and the poor, discover their armies, their strength, their horses, their treasures, their toys, their homes, their RSPs, their titles, their resumes, cannot save them. There is another way. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. We wait in hope for the Lord. I can let go of trusting myself. I can give up on me. I can make God my savior, my healer, my rescuer, my deliverer, my friend. The opposite of impossible do-it-yourself salvation is grace, for it is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved. Not by works, so that no one can do the do-it-yourself boasting. This is why the Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus. This is why in the Christmas story, we actually see these two ways of going through life laid out once more. In Luke chapter 2, a quite famous passage about the Christmas story starts out with these words. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Luke quite deliberately names the name Caesar Augustus. We need to back the truck up for a moment here, so bear with me. The entire Old Testament of the Bible is filled with a pattern. God's people are in relationship with him. They worship him. They obey him. They love him. And things go well for them. So well, in fact, that over time, they forget that their success has come to them because of their devotion to God and his good grace instead of do it yourself, and they start to think that they've done it themselves, that they don't really need God, that they can do as well or better on the do-it-yourself program. A prophet from God comes along about that time and warns them of all manner of bad outcomes waiting for them if they think they can hold things together with their own power and save themselves. And this cycle repeats over and over again until gradually they slip further and further away from God and at the same time sink more and more into moral depravity and all manner of evil. And then something changes in the pattern. Then the time comes when there is no warning, there is no voice, no divine interruption to halt the descent into the dark, 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 dark pit. The Persians who hold Judea somewhat loosely under control are defeated by the Greeks and Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great dies, there is no clear successor. Four of his generals rush to put crowns on their heads and claim the entire empire for their own. And of course, they start fighting amongst themselves. Over just one 20-year period, Judea changes hands five times as these generals fight back and forth over top of them. 
And God's silence goes on. But to the Jews, whoever is in control doesn't really matter. It's all Greek to them at this point for 170 years of rule. Spiritually, though, through a lot of this time, the Jews are left to their own devices. And out of this period, two groups of religious people emerged, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both wanted to hold religious power and would stop at nothing to get it. Poisonings, assassinations, civil war breaks out, and Jews begin to slaughter each other. Rome, the new power of the day, just stands by and watches the two sides kill each other off in a massacre that ends in Jerusalem that sees more than 12,000 killed. Jew against Jew. Jews killing Jews, and now God's silence is deafening. All the Romans have to do at that point in time is walk in which is exactly what Caesar Augustus does. And he appoints a 25-year-old named Herod, governor of Judea, and later it promotes him to become the title of king of the Jews. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. Herod stands as the poster child before us of the do-it-yourself kind of guy. He called himself Herod the Great. He relied on his own power and lived in abject, hopeless fear that one day someone else would come along to take his title and take his power away. So his response was simply to eliminate anybody who he thought might have designs on it. He, Herod executes more than half the religious leaders. He kills 300 court officers out of hand. He executes his own wife, Marianne, his mother, Alexandra, his sons, Antipater, Aristobulus, and Alexander, which prompted Caesar Augustus to say about Herod the Great, I'd rather be Herod's sow than Herod's son. And these magi, and Herod asks these, mag, asks, calls his guys together, and he says, the magi come and say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. I guess so, given his state of mind. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law, and he asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. Herod knows the Messiah has prophesied to come and save his people. And to Herod and so many others of the day, that meant he was coming for his throne. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem. Did you ever kind of pay attention to this in the whole entire story? That it was Herod who actually sent the Magi to Bethlehem? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. You know what happened. The wise men did not go back to Herod. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Herod was furious when he learned that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod sets out to wipe out any potential king that might come out of this, this Christmas thing. Herod thought he had the power. Herod thought he had the last word. He talked about power over his power lunches. But here's the key that I want you to get. It was just human power. Enough human power, sure, to kill hundreds, if not thousands, but it was just human power. I want you to understand that human power always wears out. Human power is limited. It always runs out. It never has the last word. It never, 
ever, ever saves. Finally, as he lay dying, if you can just get the picture here of the darkness, finally, as Herod lays dying, he arranges for all the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled and killed the moment his death is announced so that the multitudes who wouldn't otherwise be mourning will now be in mourning and people will think it's because he died. I want you to notice something that happened to Herod. Two simple words, Herod died. His reign came to an end. There was nothing more of Herod. He relied on his own power when it came to Jesus, and it didn't hold a candle to the power of a little baby lying in a manger whose reign would never end. But we get ahead of ourselves here. The land of Judea has been subjugated under Roman rule. The Hebrews are once again virtual prisoners and slaves. The entire nation is on the brink of being eliminated, both physically and unfortunately spiritually. 400 years of misery, slavery, riots, immorality like they'd never experienced before. Is it any wonder that we talk about Jesus being the light of the world? And God is still silent for 400 years. Not a whisper, not a word, not a warning from God. 400 years of absolute spiritual silence. Has God's patience finally run out? Has God given up on the human race? And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, and all the world should be taxed. The census was for the tax purposes. Caesar Augustus, who had the greatest resume in the world, who trusted in his own greatness and power, who was actually called by millions the savior of the whole race of mankind, needed food for his army just in order to keep them from deserting him. Caesar couldn't save himself. Meanwhile, an angel comes to some shepherds. How many resume values do shepherds have? None, I'll tell you, none at all. They were at the bottom of the list. They weren't even considered honest because they'd often let their flocks graze all over everybody else's property. They were often not even allowed to give legal testimony because they were considered to be just unrespectable and not believable. No kid in Israel grew up saying, man, I can hardly wait to be a shepherd. Caesar Augustus used his power to require all the world would be taxed and unknowingly plays right into the one who actually has the real power and control and should be the only one called great. Angels come to some shepherds and say, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be to all people. Today in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will what? He will save. And he did. He was born in a lowly manger and he lived a perfect life. And on the cross, he died a death that you and I deserve to die. So we could live a life we never deserved to live through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So we could have a hope we never deserved to have. God's power came down to us. Jesus came down to us. The ultimate power journey, power trip. The power of grace and hope. The angel said, this is the good news. Today a savior is born. It was almost laughable at the time. This poor baby in a little manger nobody has ever heard of compared to Caesar, his power, his might. 
but not a single human being on the planet calls Caesar Augustus Savior today. Not a single person, yet hundreds of millions called Jesus that. And the number keeps growing, and they do it willingly and voluntarily, not under subjugation. So what does that good news mean to us today? What happens if we have hope? How does hope change us? Well, if we have hope, we can be renewed. Isn't that where it sort of all resides? One of my favorite verses in Lamentations says, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. There's been a lot of lamenting going on so far, and now, now it just changes in this phrase. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. What the writer is saying there is because Jesus came to this earth, we can live with hope as his followers, because even though we may fail God, which we will do, and even though we may fail our children, which we will do, and even though we may fail our spouse in some way, which we will do, even so God's compassion, his forgiveness, his absolution for those wrongs we've done in our past is a renewable resource. It's never exhausted. It's fresh and it's available to us every single day because of the Lord's great love for us. And not only that, we can be changed. We actually come with a little label on us, some assembly required. And it's God who does that work in us. It's our hope, isn't it? Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God's hope renews us. And then, because we have hope, we can live with, and then there's a blank there. And I want you to fill in what this is in your own life. Because of the hope that comes to me at Christmas, I can live with fill in the blank. What is it that you can live with? We all have to live with something. Whatever burden is in your life right now, put it in that blank. You can make it through. It is hope that enables us to handle tremendous pressure. I've noticed that people who have hope can handle incredible, incredible amounts of burdens in their lives. Day to day after day after day after day burdens. They're like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talking about the ministry burdens that he had because of the persecution that he faced in his life. He said, we had great burdens that were beyond our own strength. We even gave up the hope of living. Some of you maybe feel like that today. You can relate to these words from Paul. But, but this happened so we would trust not in ourselves, but in God. Even at this point where he wondered, and I mean, am I going to make it? Paul says, I am able to find hope. He could live with anything because of the hope that God gave him. If, I have, if we have hope, we can go on. Our future is assured. You want a prescription for hopelessness? For despair? Two out of every three Canadians believe there is nothing after this life. Fully 66% of us, no wonder we have hopelessness in this land. The hopelessness is so black that people can't even face it anymore. 
I remember hearing an interview with a plane crash survivor and was asked what he was thinking as the plane was crashing. And he said this, I'll tell you the truth, it was very scary. But at the time, I felt like I was full of hope. I really had hope that if I were to die at that moment, I would be in heaven with God forever. I really had hope that if I died at that moment, God would take care of my family. It's like he says, it says in the Psalms, he's still quoting, what can anybody do to you if your hope is in the Lord? How we face death says a whole lot about how we face life. When you are assured of a future in eternity with God, then you have a sense of confidence and boldness and courage in this world. It turns us from hopelessness to hope. We have a confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill every promise he's made to us. That changes everything. Because Jesus came with the power to change us at Christmas, you can have the strength to go on. Hope is what gives us the strength to go on after a loss or a disappointment or a dream that refuses to come alive one more time. God's promises are immovable. They're always going to be there. You may not be able to see them like you want to, but it's hope that gives us the knowledge that there is a God out there who cares. If you just go on, press on, Hope is our future. That's what hope does in our lives. I like this verse about hope in, the, in what Peter wrote. He said, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Do you believe that there's joy ahead? If we have hope, we can say no. With hope, we can say no to the temptations of life. Hope is the foundation of integrity. If I have no hope for the future, then there's really nothing out there for me, is there? Then truthfully, there's no logical reason to really care about anything, including integrity, because it doesn't really matter. Hope is the foundation for genuine integrity in our lives. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. That's the power of hope in our lives. If we have hope, we can wait. It's how we started this talk. How, hope is what gives me the ability to slow down in this busy life. Without hope, we're always in a hurry. We don't know where we're headed, but we're always in a hurry to get there. It's an ironic habit of humans, check yourself on this, to always run faster when we've lost our way. We don't know where we're headed, but we think we have to put more energy into life so that hopefully we can get somewhere. If you're one of those people who use the groceries directly from your car, you're probably too busy. Hope is what shows the way. It's what enables us to slow down just a little bit to realize we don't have to rush through life so fast because we know exactly where life is headed, where our lives are headed, where we're bound. Let all that I am wait quietly before the Lord, for my hope is in him. Hope and waiting go together. Without hope, you'll find you're very restless. But with hope, you have the power to rest. Here's the definition of hope. Hope is the confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill the promises that he has made to you. The Bible refers to this as a living hope because it is always directly linked to the resurrection of Jesus. 
Peter wrote in, in his, meaning God's great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Through his life on earth, his death and his resurrection, Jesus Christ demonstrated once and for all beyond any doubt that he is God and that he really does possess the ultimate and unlimited power to fulfill the promises that he makes to us. Does that give you hope today? Promises that he'll change our lives. Promises that he'll guide us. Promises that he will walk side by side with us through the turbulence of life. Promises that he can cause good to emerge from the personal problems that we face. Promises that he will grant us eternal life in heaven with him. The resurrection is an actual physical event in history that sealed Christ's identity as being God. The God who loves us and who is committed to helping us. We have this hope, you see, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Our hope is only as good as what it's attached to, isn't it? As what it's anchored to. If our hope is attached to do-it-yourself, it's pretty lame and pretty empty, isn't it? Hope in of itself has no power. You can wish for something, you can hope for something. We might even fool ourselves into thinking everything's okay. But the only way hope has any real power is when it's anchored in the God who has that power. And not only real power, but a real desire out of his love for you to, for him to help you. Those who follow Jesus hope in the confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill the promises he's made to them. Have you felt that thrill of hope? Has your soul felt its worth in Jesus' sacrifice? Have you ever fallen to your knees in sheer adoration and gratefulness to the one who taught us to love one another, to the one who came to save us and give his life so that we might have life evermore? He's the Lord, and he's our hope through every day, and he'll be with us through death. Death itself will not be the end of me. It will, in fact, be the beginning of real life forever with our Lord and Savior. It really will. This, friends, is Christian hope. This is the power of Christmas in us. 